Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 28, being recorded on Tuesday, May 24th, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason. How are you doing? I am doing terrific, Scott. I'm happy to be back from Shop Talk. How about yourself? I am too. Did you uh, end up leaving Vegas up or down? I was up at some point and and, uh, left down, which I feel like is the most dangerous phrase in all of Las Vegas is was up. Yes, that's, that's how they get you. It's a good business. We should invest in that. Yeah, I was I was pretty dang busy at the show and did not get a chance to um, take the opportunity to mess around on any of the the casino floors. So you were playing for me. Appreciate it. Gotcha. Yeah, I I ended up having to stay Wednesday night, so I uh, had a little downtime. I should amend my answer. I'm going to be way up because I did place a wager on my San Diego Chargers for next season and. They have zero chance of doing well, so the the odds are enormously in my favor. Is this like a, all the way to the Super Bowl kind of thing? Or? I did. I, I uh, may have placed a small wager that they make it to the Super Bowl. Cool. Interesting. We will we will keep podcasters update on how that goes. A.K.A. sucker bet. Exactly. <laughs> so did you enjoy Shop Talk? I did. For a first-year show, I thought it did uh, phenomenal. I, I uh, thought it was well worth uh, my time to have attended. How about yourself? Yeah, yeah, I did. The um, How did your panel go? I, I wasn't able to make it. I had a conflict, but i uh, love to hear how it went. Well, other than being heartbroken that you couldn't make it, I thought the, the panel went really well. To remind our listeners that my topic was augmented reality and virtual reality. And super conveniently for me, you had agreed to do a deep dive on this podcast last week. So last week's episode, episode 27, was a deep dive into AR and VR, and that uh, allowed me to perfectly prepare for this panel. So we had some of the same content from the podcast, but then I had three great panelists, uh, Modzi, Modiface, and Blipper, which are all commercial augmented reality solutions that are out in the marketplace right now. And so it was pretty interesting and very well attended. Cool. Were you able to, um, did you broadcast in 360 degrees and, and all that kind of thing? I did not. We uh, Nobody got to walk out in uh, a VR headset or do any cool 360 video. All three of these panelists were actually on the augmented reality side versus versus the virtual reality side, which is uh, minorly unfortunate. But one thing that was cool, they all have very favorable ROI applications that are already in the marketplace. And one of them, a company called Modiface, is already very successfully using their technology with L'Oreal and Sephora to help women preview their face with different styles and makeup treatments. And they launched a new feature during my panel they did their first public demo of the Modiface uh, application integrated into Facebook Messenger. Neat. Was Dave Marcus there to kind of help the demo go along? Uh, he was not. He very likely could have been in the audience, but we did have a pretty successful demo. And you, the use case is kind of cool. You could imagine a 
a shopper talking to a Sephora style consultant over Facebook Messenger, and the shopper can send a picture of herself, and the the stylist can suggest some different makeup treatments and hairstyles and things like that, and the the shopper can see them in real time. So it seemed like to me a pretty practical, legitimate use case of uh, both AR and of Facebook Messenger. Yeah, having done my fair share of live demos, I congratulate them on just staring Murphy's Law in the face, and sounds like it went without a hitch, which is, in my experience, pretty rare. I uh, Whenever I do that, I have like a 95% chance of failure. So kudos to the folks at Modiface for, for having the uh, the guts to try that out. Absolutely. I think what, what helped is I had suggested that they have a re- pre-recorded video demo just in case. And I, uh-huh. I think because they had that, they, of course, didn't need it. If they didn't have it, the demo would have gone completely off the rails. Exactly. That's the only way to, to get Murphy off the rails is to have a plan B and C, and then, then they just give up. Exactly. How was your panel? It was good. It was one of our other favorite topics here at the Jason and Scott show. Um, we haven't done a deep dive on this, but it is on the backlog. And that's this topic you and I talk a lot about, about brands going direct and kind of taking control of their own destiny. We had a really interesting set of panelists with that are in different phases of that life cycle. So on the, the most mature, we had Lenovo, um, uh, which is you know, started out as a Chinese PC manufacturing, now does lots of consumer electronics and, and those kinds of things. Um, and then in the middle, we had Levi's uh, Apparel and then Nine West as well. Uh, and then kind of in the early stages of their maturity, we had Ferrara Candy. Uh, and in fact, I was able to get one of the panelists, Amanda Greenberg. She's from Ferrara and previously at Kind Bar. And then before that, Phillips. So she's kind of a, a ninja that these brands bring in to get their, their digital kind of um, – legs underneath them and go from zero to 60 miles an hour as quickly as possible. She is going to be on the show later this week as our special guest. So super excited about that. And we're going to have two podcasts for the first time in one week. So I know that's a lot of content out there for our listeners, but it's kind of our Memorial Day present so that they have more to listen to as they drag the in-laws to the beach or to the the mountains or wherever it is they're going. That's uh, really exciting. I know that the listeners particularly appreciate an opportunity to uh, force their family to listen to our podcast. So this could be another terrific opportunity to do that as we uh, as they go on car trips for the weekend. Yeah, I've heard that um, the show is really good for keeping kids from fighting in the back of the, the car because they generally go to sleep pretty quickly. So, so, you know, this is our gift to you to help make those family trips less stressful. Yep. And parents at home, if you're having trouble with your kids, feel free to just call either of us and we'd be happy to talk to them live to help them go to sleep as well. Yeah. Yeah. We have a large repertoire of bedtime stories and popular Disney songs we can sing. Do you need songs or just Frozen? I can expand beyond Frozen. We can go old school with some Snow White. What, whatever people need, we're there for our listeners. Impressive. So, Scott, I have to say I am excited to talk to Amanda later this week. I got a chance to meet her at the show as well, so I know that's going to be a great show. But before we do that, a lot of listeners that didn't make it to Shop Talk have been asking for sort of our general impressions and a recap. So I thought we should maybe cover that this week. Yeah, and um, for those that weren't able to make Shop Talk, it's this brand new show. So this was kind of the the first inaugural kind of year of this new show. And it bills itself as next-gen commerce event. 
the the backstory is there's these two entrepreneurs and they started a show called Money in 2020 that that you're quite familiar with, and they grew that show from zero to ten thousand attendees over I think five or six years. And in 2014, they sold that to one of these large global show companies called I2I or something like that. Uh, did really quite well with this show, and I think the surprise there is. Uh, you know, the, you know, this was a show about kind of money and finance and that kind of thing, which, which, uh, you know, doesn't feel like it would have this huge addressable market, but they, they really grew that to this huge audience and sold it. So, uh, there's a lot of anticipation around this new show, Shop Talk, and, and this is their, their kind of follow on to a very successful show that they've built. It was held May 15th to 18th, which is a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. There was 300 speakers, which is, pretty amazing. Uh, and it seemed like they got, um, you know, most of the VCs that are involved in our space, CEOs, C-level folks, brands, retailers, no matter how you sliced it, they had a segment of, of folks there speaking. And another thing that was interesting is they, when they first started, they set a target at 2000 attendees. They blew through that pretty quickly and were able to add space uh, at the Aria for another thousand. So, uh, and it looked like they crusted over that for the show. So they had over three thousand attendees. To put that in perspective, the the largest e-commerce show in the U.S. is Internet Retailer, um, which is that's the abbreviation. It's IRCE, which stands for Internet Retailer Conference and Exhibition. That's generally held June in Chicago. That has about ten thousand attendees. Then you have the Shop.org Summit, which is held more in the fall, usually September October timeframe. That has, I believe, between five and eight thousand attendees. So, and then you before the show, you had kind of the Etail West. I think was the next biggest show, excluding vendors, uh, and uh, it has now been bumped to number four. And this has kind of come onto the scene as number three, kind of with a bullet, which is pretty amazing. Um, so, so, so that was pretty. There was a lot of anticipation, and I think you know one of the things I look forward to hearing from you is did they live up to all that hype? So, just to give everyone kind of a just a high level overview, Sunday was a day where you got in and. Uh, it was kind of a day for people on the East Coast to get into the West Coast and, and West Coasters to get there too. And there was generally a reception kind of on the show floor. Then Monday and Tuesday were full day content. And the, generally the way it worked is um, you had a couple of hours of keynotes. They were, they were rel- relatively short keynotes. Some of them were individual speaking. Some of them were fireside chat kind of things. And then the rest of the day was tracks. And then half of Wednesday, again, you had a little bit of keynote, maybe the first two hours and then next three or four hours, um, you had some more tracks and then everyone left kind of mid, mid to late afternoon on Wednesday. So just give everyone an idea of, of kind of these tracks on the first day of Monday. There was, let's see, five tracks. Uh, the first one was disruptive startups and pioneering brands. The second one was physical retail goes digital. The third was evolving trends in marketing. The fourth was search and discovery. And the fifth was internet of things and sensors, which is, uh, you know, that's interesting for, for a retail show to talk about IoT. Um, day two, which was Tuesday, the first topic was e-commerce. The second was design. The third was measurement, analytics, and insight. The fourth was entrepreneurship and investment. The fifth, on-demand delivery and logistics. And there was a sixth track, changing consumer preferences. And then on the last day, um, they kind of extended some of the things there uh, and added a couple more. So so the first one was startup pitch, which was kind of a little mini tech crunch disrupt for retail. Uh, the second one was collaborative consumption and sharing economy, which kind of tied into the on-demand kind of angle. And then the third and fourth were kind of continuations from day two. So you had measurement analytics and insights again and changing consumer preferences. So, so 
that's kind of the bones of the show, and they hung a lot of content on there. And um, you know, so each of these tracks would have four or five pieces of content, and in there you would typically have a panel that ha- have a moderator and three or four panelists. So that's how they got to so many speakers. Is is these panels would you know you would go to these panels and you would have you know a CEO as the moderator, and then you know three or four VP or senior level people on the panel. So so really dense content uh, and and a little bit of something for everyone. Um, you know, one of the big feedbacks I heard was people really struggled to choose what to go to during a lot of times because there was so much content that was compelling. So I'm really curious. I have never been to Money 2020, and I'm I'm pretty sure you know you love that show, and I think you went to it pretty much every year since inception. So really like to hear because you've got that continuity, what you thought of Shop Talk as kind of the second child of 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 these entrepreneurs. Yeah, so I have attended all the Money 2020s, with the exception of this year's show, what would now be last year's show, which I missed. And based on that, Shop Talk felt very familiar. Money 2020 really grew from like zero to 10,000 attendees over three years. And those first three years were at Aria in the same venue that, that Shop Talk was at. And very much like Shop Talk, it felt that first year felt manageable. It felt like a lot of people attended, but you know, you could kind of uh, make your way to all the sessions and you maybe had a hard time deciding which session to go to, but there was generally room in all the sessions. And by the third year of money 2020, the ARIA did not feel like an adequate facility. It felt like when the sessions let out and all the people came out to a, the general area that there just wasn't room for all those people in one space and every session had an overflow room because there weren't you know enough seats in the, in the sessions. And I, I know as a result of that, Money 2020 had to move to a bigger venue this year. And Shop Talk feels like it's really taking on that, that same trajectory, and it seems to be following a very similar playbook. Like a lot of the, the kind of fun digital marketing touches, all the caricatures that they did for all of us, all the you know signage and wayfinding and some of the little surprise and delight things that they did were all things they did at Money 2020. So I sort of feel like they wrote a pretty good playbook for Money 2020, obviously had some nice success, and then you know now they're they're refining and executing it uh, for this new show. Cool. Were any of the speakers the same? Like at, at 2020, did the same thing with the the tracks and the short keynotes, and all, was all that very similar? And the caricatures and all that kind of, that whole vibe? Yeah, so the vibe is the same. The caricatures were the same. I want to say at the early money 2020s, they actually had the artist that does all those caricatures live on site. And you could, uh, as an attendee, stand in line and get a caricature as well, which was kind of fun. The one thing that is a little different is the big commerce attendees that everyone would recognize are all well-established companies. And so one of the things that I felt was Shop Talk did that was really impressive is they got the CEOs and senior stakeholders for a lot of big companies to come to a first-year show. And so it's not only is it impressive that they had 3,000 people, but the caliber of the, you know, of, of many of those attendees was very high. I feel like a lot of times with a startup show, even if you you do good digital marketing and you get a bunch of people to attend, it's maybe not the most senior folks from the organization. It's maybe not the biggest organizations. And so one difference, Money 2020, there's there's sort of a bigger gap. There's a few huge payment companies in the early days, like there's the Visas and MasterCards and PayPals of the world. But then the majority of the ecosystem was these small startups that hadn't made any money yet. 
And so it felt like there were a few really recognizable names and then a huge amount of small, innovative companies and entrepreneurs who you wouldn't necessarily recognize, but were super interested and involved in that space. And at Shop Talk, they, I think they, they tried to cater to both audiences again. But if I had to guess, the attendees were much more skewed towards there being a more meaningful number of companies from large enterprises and sort of senior stakeholders from those enterprises. Money 2020 kind of morphed into, there's this whole phrase fintech, right, which is financial technology companies. It seems like they really caught that fintech wave. And I, again, I never attended, but I always kind of felt like they had kind of gotten really fortunate and caught that wave. Is is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I, I think it was excellent timing on their part. I sort of chuckle. I want to say the first year was like 2015 for that show or 2014. And 2020 probably seemed like a long time away. So very clearly, when the the show was named, it's like, hey, here's the four or five year future of payment technologies. But as the show gained momentum, and the date got closer to 2020, that you know, it's obvious that the organizers are like, oh, shoot, like this, this show has legs. And it's unfortunately named because we're going to reach and surpass the year 2020. So they pretty quickly had to rebrand it to say 2020 is like perfect vision to the future of payment technologies. Mm, okay. So I, in my mind, they, they exceeded their original expectations. Got it. So overall, I felt like it was a really successful first year of the show. One of the things I like about both shows is they do try to cater to a broad range of audiences that are in the ecosystem. So, you know, some of the other e-commerce shows, like, you know, they really focus on trying to get just the big retailers or just the big pure play e-commerce folks or those sorts of things. And both Money 2020 and Shop Talk felt like they made an equal effort to be inclusive to the vendors and suppliers, to the financial community, to the startup community, to the 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 vertical media that covered that community. And so it felt like uh, overall the show had a high level of inclusiveness. And, you know, to me, for a first-year show, I think it checked most of the boxes. The one unfortunate thing from my perspective is the dates were really rough. So this week ended up being a bad week. IBM and SAP, which are two huge vendors that serve a lot of the enterprise e-commerce space, they both had their annual shows on the other coast, on the East Coast, the same week. And so there were a lot of uh, vendors and IT folks that might have been interested in coming to the show, but they had a conflict with the the IBM and uh, SAP shows. And then a lot of the media that was covering the show had it pretty rough because the show is right in the middle of sort of earning announcement season for retail. And so I, frankly, I was sort of impressed by some of the, the media covering the show because they would, they'd be filing articles and, and publishing pieces about shop talk, but then they were clearly up early in the morning listening to all these earnings calls and trying to file those pieces as well. Hmm. Yeah. I didn't realize the, the other vendors had their big shows at the same time. Yeah. I think that was probably a problem for IBM and SAP as well as it was for shop talk. So Based on all that, I, I have gotten the impression that Shop Talk is looking to actually move a little earlier in the year next year. So we'll we'll see what dates they come up with. Yeah, and I think there 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 was in the show guide. I think it said they were moving to the wind, but then I heard that the Aria had made some adjustments and they were going to be staying there. So so I do think it's going to be at the Aria next year. I don't think they've announced the date yet. We'll keep folks kind of tuned in on that. So what was your experience like, Scott? Well, I went in kind of without that money 2020 kind of exposure other than what you've told me. And the the big thing for me as an entrepreneur that I thought was pretty interesting was 
just so many VCs there. And um, I thought that added a really nice element to it. We've uh, every year at our catalyst show, we try to have a VC come talk and, and, you know, so, uh, but this one was, you know, if I had listed the top 20 venture capitalists that invest in kind of next generation e-commerce digital kind of things, uh, they were all there. So it was really great. I've, I've never seen all those people in one place. So that, that was really cool to see, you know, the first round capitals, the NEAs, the light speed ventures. I mean, it was a who's who of, of venture capitalists there, Bain capital. I mean, it was, it was pretty amazing. Um, so, so I, I kind of thought if, if, uh, if you're raising capital, it was like the perfect place to be because you could probably have 15 meetings and, and, you know, leave with a term sheet. So, so it seemed like, uh, and when I talked to those folks, um, so, so I don't know if podcast listeners know this, but I, this is, you know, Channel Advisor was my third startup, and I've raised an, an ungodly amount of venture capital in my career. Um, some kind of a dubious honor, but so I know a lot of venture capitalists. I've probably pitched 150 venture capitalists over over my career, and, and know many of them. So, so it was really neat to see all those people in one room, and I really think they add a lot to a show like this because. You know, there's a lot of pontificators in the world, like, like, you know, I'll throw you and I under the bus. We, we pontificate a lot and, and we have a lot of opinions. Guilty as um, charged. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, opinions are, are inexpensive because you and I aren't betting with our wallets, but these guys are, you know, they've got limited partners that, that are investing, you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars and expect them to be good stewards of that capital. And they, they vote with their, their collective wallets. It's other people's money, but it's effectively their careers. They're really putting on the line. And um, so it's really interesting to see where they're putting their money in and very directional because, you know, they're, they're making these five year out bets and, um, they're not always right, you know, so, so companies like fab that have failed have, have raised, I think they raised, you know, well over a hundred million dollars. And, um, you have some of these kind of unicorny like startups, like a jet, it remains to be seen how successful they'll be. Um, but then, you know, some of these, some of the things that I think you and I enjoyed are some of these brands that are being funded, these kind of native digital brands. And there's a lot of investment going on there, a lot of the subscription commerce. There's a huge wave in um, what I think people are calling re-commerce, which is kind of, you know, this uh, kind of the, the space eBay's occupied for a long time. This is getting a kind of a resurgence with a lot of these startups like ThreadUp and, and whatnot. That seems to be getting a lot of investment. And then an area that I'm really fascinated with is the on-demand economy. And it's gotten, you know, literally, you know, uh, over, over $3 billion of investment. And, and a lot of those folks were there. So, so it was really cool because I haven't been to a show where you had um, the VCs kind of brought along their top portfolio companies. And it was, it was really neat to see that kind of leading edge of what's going on. And, and that was kind of what I really enjoyed about it. Nice. Did all those VCs in one place kind of you yearn to do another startup? It really did, yeah. And uh, I have to admit, I did have some conversations with some of them about some stuff. So we'll we'll stay tuned. Nice. Clearly, when you're ready to announce, you'll you'll have to break that on the Jason and Scott show. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of the high level feedback I had. Um, you know, I, I think you and I were able to talk to uh, a lot of our usual suspects were there, and we got to kind of get a lot of feedback on the show. Um, I would I would say there's kind of like four or five themes, and I was wondering what was kind of one of the first themes that you noticed kind of that, that people were talking about as they absorbed the content. Yeah, well, so the first theme that jumped out to me is really the role of the store in the commerce ecosystem. So to sort of set the stage – the show started Sunday night with a cocktail party. A lot of people went out after the, the cocktail party and enjoyed themselves in Las Vegas. And then bright and early at 8 a.m. Monday morning, 
the keynotes are starting. And one of the very first keynotes was Jerry Stort, who uh, is the CEO of Hudson Bay Company that owns uh, Saks Fifth Avenue and Ward and Taylor and the Hudson Bay Company in Canada and some some other brands. And he gave a very aggressive presentation talking about how important stores are in the ecosystem and what a competitive advantage it is and how overrated the internet companies and pure plays are. And he, he busted out some uh, distribution math and showed how he felt like it was three times more expensive to deliver products to home than it was to uh, deliver products to consumers out of stores. And frankly, he delivered the whole keynote at a very high volume level, which is probably something I resonate well with. So <laughs> er, early Monday morning, a lot of folks with hangovers, Jerry is yelling at the audience about how important stores was. And he, you know, frankly, he was a pretty impassioned ambassador for his position. And I, I'll put a caveat on that. Unfortunately, it, it's a story we've heard from Jerry before at his previous companies. So I felt like uh, I've been to a previous shop.org show where he gave virtually the same presentation when he was CEO of Toys R Us. Careful listeners will, will know that Toys R Us has not necessarily been able to leverage their store footprint for a huge competitive advantage versus uh, many of the, the companies doing well on the internet. So while I appreciate Jerry's enthusiasm, I didn't feel like he had a ton of new stuff necessarily. And uh, I also disagree with some of his math, um, or he's dramatically oversimplifying some of his math when he was talking about the cost for home distribution versus the cost for retail distribution. But be that as it may, things really started off with this like strong, full-throated argument for the value of the stores. And then you immediately follow that up with Ron Johnson, who is responsible for some of the most successful stores we've all shopped. He, he certainly owned a big part of the Target experience. He, he collaborated with Steve Jobs to, to create the Apple experience. And then, you know, he's notorious as the leader of one of the most failed management teams in, in recent retail history at... J.C. Penney, and he was primarily talking about his new venture called Enjoy, which is largely a deliver services to your home rather than rely on a retail store. So, you know, here's a guy that has built a very successful career in retail that was like maybe not quite as loudly as Jerry, but was strongly making the case that the future of commerce may be these distributed services and both delivering goods and services to the consumer where she wants them as opposed to forcing the consumer to come to a store. So I felt like there was a pretty clear, strong contrast between those first two keynotes on Monday that really set the tone that the role of the store was going to be one of the big themes. Later in the show, Recode had a an event, a commerce event, and one of their speakers is another one of my doppelgangers, Jason Goldberger, who's recently promoted to chief digital officer at Target. And so, you know, he talked a lot about how Target views the store's role and digital's role in the future of commerce. And to me, he felt a lot more balanced. Like, I think he did make a lot of good points about advantages that the store has, but I think he was also a little more fair and realistic about the the elevated role of digital moving forward. And then another keynote on one of the mornings was Stephen Lowry, who is an executive with Westfield Malls, and he was doing the best he could to sort of make the point about how the mall operators are trying to modernize and reinvent the shopping experiences in malls and how they intend to 
keep malls and those physical shopping experiences relevant. So a lot of good, senior, diverse opinions about the role of the store in the future of commerce. And I found it in- enjoyable to listen to those different perspectives. Yeah, Scott. So were there any key themes that jumped out to you at the show? Well, the uh, so my panel was on brands. And then, you know, it it, uh, it was actually kind of, there was a ton of content before the panel about this. And as I talked to people, it was it was really kind of the the second big theme that that jumped out the uh, I did hear a lot of people shared your view on the Jerry Storch piece unfortunately I was a little delayed getting out there so so I missed that one uh, I heard someone joke that he he's probably been giving that presentation since uh, acetates and they were surprised he didn't like ask for like a <laughs> one of those old school uh you know kind of projectors where you, where you take the film and pass it over the, the glass kind of thing um <laughs> so so you know I took that to be pretty negative feedback um so the, this brand topic's pretty interesting, and it's kind of like where where do brands fit into this this world? Um, and uh, you and I are both kind of fanboys of Andy Dunn, who is one of the the founders of Bonobos and and the CEO. Uh, he moved to exec chairman, uh, and I thought he was still exec chairman, but I, I learned at the show that he is kind of that lasted six months, and then uh, for whatever reason, it didn't work out with the CEO CEO they had brought in, and they're back. Um, and um, that was really interesting to kind of hear him talk. He he was interviewed by by Jason Del Rey from Recode, who does a really good job interviewing folks. I, I always feel like he's he asked the kind of the next question that that I have. Um, so obviously, I like that as, in an interviewer, um, and he he doesn't leave a lot of stones unturned. And so so that was pretty interesting, kind of hearing from him, and um, and then some of these other folks that you know be at the birch boxes, and and so it's really interesting to kind of think where do some of these new brands belong where do the old brands belong and you know one of the conclusions that 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 I think is pretty interesting is you know what what happens to the multi-brand retailer kind of tying these two together the store and 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 whatnot and you know the it, it's easy to the timing as you mentioned there was earnings season and a lot of the multi-brand retailers were not doing well as this show was going on so so it provided this overdrop that kind of maybe accentuated this, but you had Macy's and Kohl's and Nordstrom's all both um, not only missing their numbers, but kind of announcing store closures and pretty drastic kind of things. And so it was really kind of interesting kind of thinking about where does brand fit in and um, you know, what, what happens to the multi-brand retailer and, you know, I, the Andy Dunn, pretty much said if you're if you don't own your own brands you're toast and and i have to kind of agree that's pretty compelling uh i don't know what the time frame is but but i kind of agree in in this kind of world and you know uh, also uh, kind of another kind of news thing that was there that we've talked a lot about on the podcast is amazon really getting aggressive with private label um which kind of shows they're kind of heading into this brand world too so so i i, I kind of think that was a pretty big topic both on the on the front of the stage and then behind the scenes that everyone was talking about. What's another theme that that you you thought was was a, a big topic at the show? Yeah, I, I do want to pile on to the brand theme just briefly. Totally agree with you and Andy about the value of owning your own brand. I, I think specifically Andy is having this challenge that the valuation of his own company is getting affected by investors that look at the brand based retailer as equivalent to a third-party based retailer. And so, I, you know, frankly, I think he has a fair ulterior motive in getting the word out about the enhanced value of these 
digitally native vertical brands in the hopes that they'll be valued differently in the marketplace. And while I tend to agree with that, and I think it's interesting, and he, he actually has started a database of companies that that meet his definition for digitally native vertical brands, and we'll, we'll post a link to that database. What was kind of interesting going on at the same time is, for example, Gap had their earnings call, which was very bad news. And after that earnings call, like some, someone asked the CEO of Gap, Art Peck, who's a digital guy, you know, would you ever consider partnering with Amazon? And he's like, absolutely. We, we have to keep all our options open. And so, you know, at the same time, you're talking about some of these new vertically integrated brands as the potential hope for the future. You do have to remember there, there is a whole crop of vertically integrated brands that maybe weren't digitally native, like the Gap and Abercrombie and, and a bunch of those companies are really struggling. So I don't think owning your brand is a magic bullet, but it, it does appear like a, an interesting competitive advantage moving forward. So I just, I just wanted to throw out that there is that kind of funny undercurrent that some of the, the legacy native brands are not doing particularly well. Yeah. And another kind of surprise was Jason said, Hey, I heard you were thinking of combining three or four of these digital native brands into kind of like a a mega one. And I immediately thought of, you know, what if you took Bonobos, Dollar Shave Club and, um, you know, maybe a couple of these other ones, maybe you had kind of a, uh, a men and a women kind of two and you ended up with four, um, you know, maybe, you know, what would that look like? And the the thing that's kind of curious is I, it's hard to tell how large these, these companies are. And, and he was very coy about that. Um, I think I've seen dollar shave club is at about a $300 million run rate. And, you know, my guess is they're probably at parity or maybe ahead of bonobos. Um, so, you know, that's all, you know, the, the, these are interesting things, but at 300 million, you're not really, you know, moving the needle, you know, from a, you know, Zappos was a billion dollars kind of when they got acquired and, you know, some of these larger retailers are multiples of billions of dollars. So, so I think they're doing well and they're growing, but they're not billion dollar kind of run rate companies yet, which, which you kind of need to get to, to really have scale in, in the, the retail world and the brand world. Um, so, you know, it, it's pretty interesting to kind of think about how big are these things and, and will they hit the ceiling? Uh, and then we've seen a lot of these kind of, you know, these quote unquote fads of retail hit a ceiling like the flash sale guys all seem to get to kind of a billion dollars. And then they really flattened out because the model started to kind of wear a little bit thin. So it's going to be interesting to see if, um, you know, there's some combination of these guys or if they can kind of break through that, that kind of artificial ceiling that, that exists. And I think that's one of the challenges they're probably having as they're, they raise funds is people have seen this kind of happen before and they're getting nervous about it. Yep. And there are some that, you know, you don't necessarily think of as vertically, digitally native vertical brands that are a little further along. So like the Revolve guys, you know, they're, they, they don't do quite as much media, although lately they have been, and they're probably at like four or 500 million, um, in revenue, depending on how you count, like something like the Honest Company could be considered one of these and, and they are getting ready for an IPO. And then of course, the best digitally native vertically integrated brand out there is one you know particularly well is Tesla. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, because they sell cars, the the yeah, it makes it the, easier to get to that unicorn threshold, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah houses sure would be the other way to go. I'm going to do a digitally native vertically integrated house uh, housing brand. <laughs> Jason's houses. Thanks for naming it for me. I'll tell you another theme that felt pretty recurrent at the show and won't surprise anyone is mobile's role in the shopping experience. 
And what was a little different about mobile is I, I didn't feel like mobile had the strong presence on the keynote stage the way that these first two themes had, um, but it was maybe the most ubiquitous talking point in all of the panel sessions. And uh, so some of the things that came up numerous times that I think are sort of interesting, people are getting a lot more interested and encouraged by the latest evolutions in deep linking in apps so that apps can leverage a lot of the, the SEO and digital marketing that we traditionally use with websites. So all the app developers are super excited about that. We, we've talked a lot about mobile on the show. I'm less bullish on apps than some other people. And so the deep linking thing is a nice evolution to me, but it's not a game changer. One that is a potential game changer, though, is this new content metaphor on the mobile phone that, you know, most people are calling cards. So what we're seeing a lot more mobile experiences that use this card metaphor as opposed to a website or an app metaphor. And, you know, uh, Google is certainly doing a lot of this with Google Now. They're starting to have cards in search results. We're seeing Facebook adopt a card metaphor. And there are actually startups out there doing like mobile CMSs that publish cards that you push to to mobile phones. And what what I find interesting is... If that's a better user experience paradigm on the mobile phone, which there's there's some reason to believe it is, one of the things that strongly does is say, hey, that's a very different experience than what we're delivering on the desktop experience or laptop experience. And so this has the potential to really fragment the experience between smartphones and these other devices. And, you know, up to now... Certainly a lot of the technologists have been lobbying for a kind of one-size-fits-all responsive design and things like that to try to publish the same same experiences across all these devices. So I, I think we're still early days, but I think the evolution of the cards as a user interface paradigm on mobile has the potential to really be a game changer. And then shortly after the show ended, so this is cheating, the Google I.O. conference happened, and one of the things they announced, and it, it got way less ink than some of the hardware stuff they talked about, is this notion of instant apps. And to me, instant apps is particularly interesting because that's really a way to deliver some of the the value that we all agree apps have without a lot of the friction that apps have. So this is a pieces of an app that get installed on demand when a user needs them. And there's no going to the app store and having to know your password and download all this stuff. It's just instead of a getting a mobile web page or a card, you're getting a little fragment of code that then launches on your phone. And traditionally, one of the things that I really hated about the mobile experience is that they're really slow and kludgy. And particularly when, God forbid, advertisers get involved and put advertising content on all these pages, the, the pages are just really unwieldy and it's a slow, negative experience on a mobile phone. And so instant apps have a real opportunity to be a game changer to solve some of those problems. So you roll up all those things, and this this could definitely be an interesting twelve to eighteen months for for mobile. Yeah, kind of. Even though Google didn't announce all this stuff, there was kind of it felt like there was a fair amount of overlap there, and, and maybe that was smart of the shop talk guys to kind of tuck it in before that, um, before the Google I/O. Yeah, absolutely. And so, like I suspect, we'll talk about more about Google I/O in a subsequent show. But I certainly think that's an area that that anyone in the commerce space should be looking at. Any other themes that jumped out at you? Yeah, so so we've had um, you know the role of the store, brands and where they fit in, mobile, and I would kind of clump theme four would be kind of 
you know, kind of what the whole show was trying to be uh, was this next commerce. Like, what is going to be the next big thing? Uh, and that's where you had the venture capitalists leading a lot of the discussions and looking at the startups and, you know, where are we seeing this kind of cutting edge innovation happen? And, you know, uh, one of the, one of the more interesting stories there is Dollar Shave Club. So, so Michael Dubin was there and, and that was really cool to see him. Um, you had Birchbox. Uh, honest, I was excited to see them because that's a brand I've, I've really kind of admired how they've built that. Um, and you always hear about Jessica Alba being involved, but it's interesting to kind of hear from Brian Lee, who seems to be kind of the operational guy behind the scenes. Um, you know, very, very non, um, non ego kind of a guy, very executional. So, so I really respected that. Um, then you and I went to that code commerce and we saw one of the, the re-commerce folks, the real, real talk. And that was really interesting. Um, it seemed like, uh, they had raised like $200 million. So, so that was surprising to me. Luxury, not, not a topic. Um, not, we're, we're probably not customers for that, but this kind of, you know, repurchasing luxury kind of stuff uh, was was pretty interesting, um, and then you know having kind of a pitch contest for startups was was pretty cool as well. So so I always like to see that, and um, you know, I, the the on demand stuff is really interesting. So probably my favorite out of there. Well, I'll save that for later. But there's they had a lot of the on demand economy folks there, so um, that was really interesting to kind of see you know what what's going on there. And I haven't seen those. They don't usually kind of come to our shows, which doesn't make sense to me, but they, they make a, you know, I believe that all retailers should be watching that really super closely. Um, and certainly folks like Amazon are, um, and it's gonna, even if you don't end up providing those kinds of experiences, it's going to change consumer behavior in ways, uh, that are going to really dramatically impact per, you know, um, consumer expectations for retail. So, so I found that to be really, really helpful kind of set of companies that I don't see other places. Yeah, I would totally agree. A couple of sort of fun anecdotes amongst those speakers. I, I was with you. I had never really seen Brian Lee before, but he seemed like such a down to earth, humble guy. And he's talking about like his first experience with target and not really knowing anything about retail. And he was, he, he, you know, he was being very honest about some of his intellectual gaffes. And you're like, oh my God, he's a really likable everyman. But then, you know, he's interjecting. And, you know, finally, after the fourth time, Jessica Alba asked, you know, we decided to start a company together. And, and, uh, Kim Kardashian called and talked about starting this company. And it, it seems like he's a down to earth, super practical everyman with a way cooler Rolodex than I have. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. So I thought that that was kind of funny. And then Julie Wainwright, who you mentioned at The Real Real, this is silly, and she didn't really even talk about it, but she has a little extra commerce creds and weight to me because I believe she was the founding CEO of Pets.com. Oh, really? Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. And so uh, it, it, many of you will remember the Pets.com mascot, which when Pets.com crashed, the mascot became the most valuable asset in the company. And I believe they... They sold him to another company, and there are all sorts of funny things. I think he got sued by Triumph, the insult dog. <laughs> and uh, so it's it kind of funny to see. I mean, that's obviously a sort of true commerce pioneer when you think about Pets.com. So that was, that was, that was fun stuff. We're going to have to get her on the Jason and Scott show for sure. I would love to have her. We'll just ask her about Pets.com. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure she'll love that. Exactly. I'm sure that's what she wants to talk about way more than her current current business. <laughs> that may be why we're not as successful getting guests as, say, NPR. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. We'll have to work on our pitch. Yeah, I'm going to mention that to our showrunner and see what happens. 
Okay. So the fifth and uh, probably in the interest of time, final theme is one that I did not see on the stage. And I didn't really uh, get a strong impression of it on any of the keynotes or in uh, many of the panels. But it was the most commonly discussed thing in the hallways. And, you know, that's a topic that will come as no surprise to our listener, Amazon, and the whole partner frenemy thing and what everyone's answer needs to be for this increasingly powerful and scary juggernaut. Mm. Yeah, and it, it, it was definitely a topic kind of behind the scenes, but, you know, I didn't really see, there was a speaker from Amazon and, and uh, I want to talk about that in another section, but uh, there really wasn't a lot of how you survive in an Amazon world. I, I think, um, you know, the Andy bought it up from Bonobos, but other than that, I really didn't get, uh, well, I guess, I guess Postmates kind of believed that they think it's going to be the only way to kind of survive. And, and, you know, this kind of, getting things from a store to people very quickly and getting your inventory tuned up is kind of the, the store delivery model um, using Postmates, obviously as they, they have a vested interest in that. Um, but that was like the only times I really kind of heard it on the stage. But I feel like when I talked to everyone behind the scenes, that's their number one concern. And even when I talked to a lot of these VCs, one of the reasons they give when I talk to them for not doing more investment in this area is, you know, people have to have a really good answer to the Amazon question. Yeah, I don't think there's a very clear one that we can all hang our hat on, right? You know, I do think the exclusivity and and owning your own brand is certainly one, but then you see a bunch of people that own their brands that are sort of caving and making their brand available on Amazon, which is a little scary if you believe that brand exclusivity is your defense against Amazon. And obviously, you know, most of the retail guys talk about Omnichannel being the antidote to Amazon and, and leveraging the stores. And certainly Jerry, Jerry Stork made that argument loudly, if nothing else. But what's interesting, I, I want to say Forrester published a Omnichannel benchmark today where they proposed a framework for measuring retailers and how far along they are on their their omni-channel progression. And so they ranked retailers and number one most omni-channel retailer, Sears. And you go down the list and you look at all the retailers on that list and the, the folks that are executing omni-channel the best are also struggling the most and are, you know, frankly, being the least successful in competing against Amazon. So to me, at least anecdotally, it's it's clear you can't beat Amazon by just adding the checkbox omni-channel features. And, you know, I, I honestly, I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all uh, answer for competing with Amazon. And I, I think that's that's something that, that everyone's going to continue to explore and struggle with uh, for the next couple of years. Yeah, and uh, it's one of our joint pet peeves. It um, may be our only one. I don't know. We'll have to explore that sometime. The I did hear several people kind of use the old chestnut now that you know, well, Amazon doesn't have to be profitable, and you know, Wall Street will force them to be, and that's kind of what you know. That's how it's going to be. Um, so that keeps coming up, and we have to keep kind of dispelling that. So listeners know that that's kind of a a not true, and be a big pet peeve of ours, and C not going to really help people. Absolutely. And by the way, Scott, I, I do want to say one point of pride. A couple people tried to get away with making a comment like that on the stage, including Ron Johnson at some point. And I feel like our listeners on twi- uh, Twitter referenced the fact that our eyes were probably rolling <laughs> that comment. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Ron. I think you're wrong on that one, buddy. 
Um, so I know we're tight on time. Let's do a little bit of a lightning round here. So give me your favorite two talks and maybe where you think there was a miss. You asked for two, so I'm going to cheat and say three. I uh, enjoyed the Ron Johnson talk. I didn't mention this when we talked about it up front, but he started out exclusively talking about enjoy, and I was a little disappointed because I kind of felt like he has this storied retail history, including what clearly were some learnings and mistakes he made at JCPenney. And he and the interviewer were completely avoiding them as they're talking about this happy new startup. And then, you know, about halfway through the interview, she started asking questions about JCPenney. And he was the most open and candid that I think he's been in public about it. And so that that was really interesting to me. I think uh, you and I both mentioned enjoying Andy Dunn. I enjoyed Jason Delray's interview with Jason Goldberger. Anytime you have, you know, Jason listening to Jason talking to Jason, how can you not like that? As you probably inferred from from some of my previous comments on this this episode, I didn't find Jerry's presentation, Jerry Stork's presentation, particularly persuasive. So that would go down as one of my misses. And then I have to just say, on misses overall, I think the panel format was really smart to get a lot of notable people to agree to come to the show and speak. And one of the reasons that panels work so well is you get to list four people instead of one, and it's super easy for all the panelists. And so it's easier to agree because you don't have to prepare a lot of content and do a lot of work. But the downside is I didn't find the majority of the panels to be super engaging or impart a lot of super useful information. So as a format... Uh, I'm just not in love with having a ton of panels, and and I, I have to say, Shop Talk probably had too many panels for my taste, with the exception of our panels, of course. Yeah, but I mean, all joking aside, I know for a fact you and I work pretty hard on our panels, and we probably did invest more more time than the the average panel. And not to deride anyone, but I think if you you just did the minimum that the show asks you to do, you get kind of a bland result. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. My favorite was, and, and it wouldn't be a good Jason and Scott show if we don't spend a little more time talking about Amazon. So um, Stephanie Landry was there, and she's a worldwide VP of Amazon Prime now. And you and I had referenced an article, I think it was in Wired, where they talked about how Amazon went from you know day zero to 100 days and launched their first Prime now. So she went through that story, so I won't use our time on that. Um, but it was really interesting from a startup perspective to see this this you know 100 billion dollar company um, execute like a startup. So she had total ability to go sign leases and go quickly. And she talked a little bit about the product development. And, and it was interesting. Amazon has this methodology where they work backwards. So they start with a press release and she she showed it very quickly. I didn't get a chance to write it all down, but um, I did take pictures of all this stuff because I'm uh, infinitely fascinated with how such a big company can do this. So she just kind of this was part of her pitch to Bezos, you know, uh, evidently where she just kind of started and said, you know, today Amazon delivered its first product to a consumer in an hour and it had a quote and it even talked about the product and it talked about launching in these cities. Um, and that's how they start is they kind of start with this kind of um, whimsical press release of kind of, you know, this is the goal. If we can kind of build this press release and then they work backwards from there, uh, which is which is pretty fascinating. And, and you never hear retailers talk about this kind of stuff, but this is kind of how a Google or an Apple or, or some of these kind of companies build things. And then they did this really awesome mock-up and it had all these features. It had recommendations and, you know, it was, it was kind of like Amazon in a mock-up kind of a thing for, for prime now. Uh, but then 
they ruthlessly came out with a minimum viable product, which is what you would call in, in software or MVP. And they had to throw a lot of that out. And, and she did a really interesting job showing kind of like where they wanted to be when they launched. And they were really far away. I mean, it was very, very basic when they launched. Interestingly, I think they've caught up to that and they've probably surpassed now, you know, after a couple of years uh, where that was. Um, another thing, um, this is the funniest Amazon presentation I've ever seen. She had a really great sense of humor and she pulled up one of the first articles, which was, I think it was from Spencer Soper. And, and he kind of had said, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, Amazon now allows you to get, uh, and I think it was something like horse heads, condoms, and handcuffs in an hour, just kind of like making fun of why would people need this? Um, and then, you know, she, she had all these, uh, she counteracted that with all these customer just raving over what they were buying in an hour. And one of the things that, that I hear from a lot of retailers is, you know, who needs something in an hour? And, and certainly that's true. But when you can get it in an hour or two and you don't pay more, why not? And, and this this changes people's behavior so rapidly. I think retailers are really missing the whole point. Um, it was funny is at the end of her talk, she kind of said, and I'm happy to report we've sold over 200 horse heads, dozens of handcuffs. And these are like the toy handcuff kind of things that like more of a kid would use and over 300,000 condoms. So it was kind of funny. She kind of threw shade at the reporter um, that they'd actually sold a ton of that stuff. It was just <laughs> pretty funny. Um, and then she showed this map very very quickly, and I think I got a shot of this that we can put up on the show notes, but it went through every state and talked about the top item, and I thought it was real fascinating to kind of see, and it was a lot kind of everyday essentials, so it was like water, paper products, so toilet paper and paper towels, ice cream, eggs, and then she kind of started talking about some regional things, which was interesting, so in Portland, anything organic, Seattle, vegan pizza, New York bounty, then she kind of threw shade at San Francisco and said they were kind of soft because the number one thing there was Cottonelle Ultra Comfort toilet paper um uh, they all, she also highlighted that in six cities they they work with local local grocery stores so it's kind of a third party kind of a pickup and delivery kind of thing um and then uh, she announced at the show they were doing restaurants in eight cities um and they had added new york and denver that day so so that that was by far my favorite i, I probably you know learned 50 interesting things there that I'm, i still need to go back and, and re compose and, and kind of make sure I caught it all. Um, the next one was Postmates. And, and this is interesting because um, I don't know if you know or not, but you know, the, the Bay area guys all funded all these other food delivery guys like diner dash and whatnot. And these guys are winning. It's a German immigrant that kind of started the company and they do, they've started with food delivery. They do some products now, but they started with food delivery and they've gone up against everyone and are doing really well. So including Amazon, um, but also Uber has really tried to get into this and, and Postmates seems to be pulling away. And then there was also a VC that said they'll never make money. And, and then it leaked their Some of their financials leaked and they're, they're actually quite profitable. So that was, that was really interesting to hear from him. And, and he was so well-spoken. I, I was really impressed with that entrepreneur. Um, then my worst uh, would be at that same Code Commerce, uh, we had the Zappos CEO, Tony Shea, talking. Um, and I think that really missed the mark because uh, you know they've been acquired by Amazon for like five years now, and all they talked about was holacracy. And I've read so many articles on that. And um, you know everyone knows he has llamas, and he's kind of an unusual dude. And, and I think the Kara Swisher was an interviewer, and she's, she's kind of funny the way she asked questions. I enjoyed that part of it. But it was kind of 
missed the mark to me because you have this room full of retailers and and I don't I don't know if Zappos has really grown since the acquisition and you know I can't really think of anything terribly innovative they've done since the acquisition other than mess around with kind of this internal navel gazing around how you org the company and stuff like that. So I, I that was a little disappointed by that. Um Another thing I think was a miss with all these folks the the best in the entrepreneurial world, the best content I have found is failure st- stories. Um, so I think there was a miss there. You know, I would love to hear from border circuit city. Um, one of the things I really enjoyed with our Kevin Ertel interview was, you know, he had worked at tower records and borders and hearing from folks that have, have kind of been at these companies that failed. Those are some of the best lessons. And I feel like they didn't have really kind of any content around that. That would have been something I would have expected with, you know, with this kind of an audience. Yeah. Especially with like all the startup community where obviously the hit rate is much lower. They're just are more failures. Yeah, and it's totally acceptable with these Bay Area VCs. It's it's totally acceptable to fail. And as an industry, we don't really have that. It's kind of like, oh, you were at Circuit City, you're doomed, you know. Yep. Um, so so I you know I would love to get the Fab guys up there, or you know, or let's get um, you know not not maybe not even failures, but like the flash sale people, and, and hear from them and say, hey, you know, guilt founder or um, or uh, what's the kids one. Um, you know, hey, why did you guys? Why do you think this kind of hit this ceiling? And and you know, what do we do as an industry about that? So I think that was a little bit of a miss. Well, Scott, it's happened again. We've spent a perfectly good hour of our listeners' lives. Don't forget to join our Facebook page and write us a review on iTunes. And until later this week, happy commercing. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 